Greeting friends and colleagues, welcome to the Thoughtful Teacher Podcast, a service of OnCourse Education Solutions. I am Scott Lee. I hope you are safe and well. In this episode, we continue our ongoing series on restorative practices with a discussion about working with children and adolescents who have experienced trauma with our guest, Dr. Paul Baker. Dr. Baker is a developmental neuropsychologist, former special education administrator, and foster and adoptive parent. He is the developer of the Person Brain Model, a neurotransactional behavior support model, co-author of the books, The Hopeful Brain, Neurotransactional Repair for Disconnected Children and Youth, and The Minded Brain, a social, emotional, and culturally responsive curriculum. His experience in merging brain-based science with trauma-informed, strength-based psychological treatment has been instrumental in changing mental health and educational programs across North America, Europe, Australia, and Asia. Dr. Baker's dynamic professional development engages participants across a wide variety of cultures and encourages them to work with troubled children in more innovative and brain-friendly ways. We will begin our discussion today talking about how work as a substitute teacher led to finding new ways to support students who experienced trauma. Welcome, Paul Baker, to the Thoughtful Teacher Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you for joining us. Let's get started uh, first off with a little bit of your journey. How does somebody who's a special education teacher end up uh, as a developmental psychologist? Well, it's an interesting thing because when I was in uh, undergraduate school, uh, I had no intention of even going into education. So we kind of start there might be the best place for me to begin the, the kind of the, the story. When I uh, was in college, um, I actually added on a degree in um, education. Um, and I wasn't ever sure if I would ever use it or not. And so when I came out of school, um, an opportunity arose to go and work at a program at that time, uh, it was known as the Georgia Psychoeducational Network, and now it's called the Georgia Network for Education and Therapeutic Supports. And I came in uh, as a long-term substitute. Uh, I went for the interview and uh, I had no idea what kind of school I was going to. I didn't know what exactly the situation was. And the person interviewed me and told me about it and started saying, are you going to be working with uh, you know, children who have troubled pasts and uh, that you know, in many cases they may be involved with the law? And this was really something that was very uh, unfamiliar to me. Um, I, I certainly uh, had not trained to do that. But when I, I got in and I started doing some substitute teacher work uh, for a lady who had gone on maternity leave, I got in and I found out that I was really, really intrigued by that whole practice of working in special ed with children that I don't remember ever seeing growing up. You know, I'd, I'd never seen children that had uh, run out of a classroom or had thrown a desk across a classroom or had said, you know, F you to a teacher or something significant like that. And when I was in there, I started to realize that I had a little bit of a knack to be able to dialogue with these kids and to de-escalate them. And I don't know how that came around because just like I said, no prior experience personally or professionally, but it was something that really I found uh, to be quite engaging and felt pretty good that, uh, about doing. 
And uh, as that kind of uh, surfaced, uh, I found myself just about a year and a half later, I was not only had been a teacher, uh, but I also ended up becoming the principal of the school by the age of 23. And so it was kind of a, a unique situation. And so that kind of uh, began my journey uh, as I started to have to look at what are the best ways to intervene and support and, and to provide some transformation for kids in school. And, you know, I started to realize that a lot of the practices that were being used at that point were very punishment based when we weren't getting very good results. And so I started to look around at strategies and techniques that may be alternatives to punishment and, you know, things like restorative uh, justice started to come out. And then at that time, I found the Circle of Courage uh, Network and Reclaiming Youth Network at that point. And really the practices back then, and this was, gosh, in the late 1990s and the early 2000s, probably when most of this, I would say, was starting to take hold, really started to resonate with me. And when we started to bring that thinking back to the school, it really transformed the culture in which we were, in which we were working. And that transformation involved now seeing, instead of teachers walking children uh, down the hall to come to my office, I saw them walking down the hall, therapeutically dialoguing with these kids. And the change was just absolutely significant. And back then, it was very common for children in, in, in these types of settings to be frequently, they would be restrained, or we even back in that time used timeout rooms. And in 2004, we had made the decision that we wanted to drastically reduce our restraints and drastically uh, eliminate uh, the use of timeout in any form. And I remember the time bringing that back to my staff and, you know, some of them even saying, oh, I'm going to quit if you take these things away from us because um, there's no way we'll be able to support these kids. Uh, they'll, start to, um, they'll start to take over the school. But the opposite happened, actually. Uh, we saw restraints go down dramatically, and we completely eliminated the use of restraint by, I mean, uh, of seclusion and timeout rooms just by simply saying it's not an option anymore. And people now had to look for some other things. Well, I was in that time, I was also going to graduate school and uh, I was getting my PhD in psychology and I started to take classes that were oriented around the brain. And as I was taking these classes in psychology and thinking about the work that I was doing on a day-to-day -day basis as a professional, I started to realize how absolutely critical it is that we understand the brain and that we needed to be able to understand basic systems of the brain because if you understand the basic systems of the brain, then it's a lot easier to try to identify interventions that'll work. And we found out that it really does matter what interventions you use based on the brain state of the child at that moment. You know, there are, are brain states that are, are logical brain states where your thinking brain is actually in play. But then there are also brain states where your survival system is in play. And the unique thing about a survival-based behavior is it has no thinking attached to it. It's very, very reactive. And so these come from our experiences from the survival type of, of reaction and the experiences of our ancestors in some cases, the things that they've handed down to us. And so intervening in those different ways were very different. And so people would ask me, they would say, what I'm doing is not working. 
And it was a lot easier to explain the why behind it not working through brain-based applications, because I would say you're using thinking strategies in a situation where the brain is no longer thinking, it's reacting. And when we were able to stop and have people pause and say to themselves or ask the question, what's happening? What am I observing? Where does this behavior appear to be coming from based on what's being said or being done in the moment? People started making better decisions and we started seeing a better happier professional culture. You know, the greatest thing is that for um, 10 years, uh, we maintained a 94% retention rate of of staff. And that's really unheard of in that field because it's a high burnout field. But when people felt like they were supportive and supported, then the job was very fulfilling to them. That is really interesting, the effect on uh, on the professional staff. I mean, a 10-year 94% retention rate is almost any school, even the ones that are considered the the most easy, where they have the easiest students to work with would have trouble doing that. So that is really, really interesting. So the other thing that I wanted to ask, I know in addition to, uh, to your work in teaching and your graduate work, you also were a foster parent. Yeah. And I have done uh, some training and consulting work with a couple of foster care groups, primarily with helping with prepare for IEPs for your kids or, you know, ways to help with homework, those kinds of things. And I've got to say, being a foster parent is about the toughest thing that I can imagine doing. Can you tell us a little bit about how your family decided to take this on and then how it affected the work uh, that you do and the way you approach the way you approach uh, your journey and the experience working with kids. So, you know, being a foster parent was probably one of the most enlightening things that I've, I've done in my life because, you know, as a, as an educator, you know, as you said, you know, every day I would be talking to people about their IEPs. I would be talking to parents, foster parents, department of family and children's services, whoever it is that might be attending a meeting. We were talking about, all the work that we were doing at school. And I I know that conversations sometimes would happen at tables where we would often say, well, if the parents would only do this, or if the parents, you know, were uh, able to support the school, things would be so much better. Becoming a foster parent helped me to understand a lot more of that home life that was extremely critical. Because not only was I doing this from seven in the morning until whenever I got home at five or six o'clock at night. But at the minute that I got home at night, I became a therapeutic helper, as we describe in, in my book, In the Hopeful Brain. And I was a therapeutic helper, meaning that I was still doing therapy all night long. And sometimes when these kids would wake up at three o'clock in the morning, I was doing therapy. And so it really provided me with a a different perspective. So I had uh, 29 different foster kids that actually came through my home over the years and ultimately ended up adopting four of those kids. Um, And that last adoption was 16 years ago, which we were just thinking about that yesterday. And my boys are now grown uh, and two of them are actually uh, one of them is married and I have two grandkids already. So that's how much time has elapsed uh, during that. But, you know, it was just by chance that I became a foster parent. One of my kids uh, from my school was actually in court and during the court proceedings and juvenile proceedings, obviously they're, they're held uh, very confidentially. And I had been waiting outside 
because uh, this young man had asked me to, to go into court and at least to talk about him being a good kid. And that's what he said. He goes, can you come and tell the, the court that I'm a good kid? Because no one knows that I'm a good kid. And so I'd gone to the court and basically had some charges that had been brought up uh, against him in, in the community. And I was able to share some of the good things that we knew about this child, the strengths that he had. And, you know, our perspective of being able to look at some of his behaviors that he had were actually what we identify as survival strengths. They were, they were things that he had developed in order to survive in his life. And, and I felt like the court needed to know that because some of those troubling behaviors actually helped keep him alive when he was uh, living with his biological family. And so he was just really starting to learn that he didn't need to have those behaviors in the school environment where he was in right now. And, and uh, so the judge ended up asking me to go to foster care training. And he said, hey, would you do me a favor? And I said, what is that? And he said, would you think about becoming a foster parent? And I said, oh, I'm too young. I don't know. I'm in graduate school. You know, I, I don't know that I'm the best person to do that. And that really sat pretty heavily with me for a couple of weeks. And then finally, I, I found that card again in my desk and called him up and went to the first training. And well, as you would say, the rest is history. And as kind of moved, but it's been a massive shaper in, in looking at what we do in the person brain model. It continues to bother me, you know, when I, when I hear something like that, a, a kid said, you know, they call me a bad kid. Can you come and, and tell them that I'm a good kid? And yeah. I just sometimes don't even know what to do with, with, with the way we describe kids is just so wrong. Right. But, well, you know, even in back in, in the 1940s, Yuri Bronfenbrenner told us that kids need at least one adult who's just really emphatically crazy about them. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of times kids are, are looking for that adult who, who can be the president of my fan club right now. And, and they're really looking for that. And, and this young man actually ended up being my first foster child. Uh, mm -hmm. He actually became my, my foster child. And so it's really helped to shape um, what we've done in, in, in designing the person brain and even looking at kids through what we identify as a neurotransactional model, trying to take a look at all aspects of them, not just their behavior, but everything that's helped them to become who they are. You know, I, I, I say to people, if you're ever challenged by a child and you're not sure what to do, start to think about the sights and the sounds and the smells and the tastes and the touches of that child's life. And that will start to help you conceptualize the why behind this behavior. There was one child that I remember, and to this day, he, he was the most challenging child that I've ever had in my career. And I, I think I would probably not say that if I had the knowledge that I have now. Is, it, is this a student or one of your foster children? I was actually one of my, a student, actually. Mm -hmm. Thanks for clarifying that. I was actually a student. And I remember just how challenged I was by him because, you know, back in, in that day, we didn't conceptualize trauma and how trauma might impact things. And so we saw behavior as behavior and we were trained to see behavior as behavior. Behavior modification, that's what mm -hmm. people talked about. Modify that behavior at any cost. Set the limits, be strict. And um, then everything will kind of come around. But 
as I look back and I think about the behaviors that that young man would be showing in the school, they were behaviors that people identified as, you know, oppositional defiant. He was a juvenile delinquent. He was a quote, budding sociopath. I remember them saying all of these things. And I remember, you know, he would come into school and within just the first five or 10 minutes, he already had the school disrupted and he was doing things to get as much attention as possible. And we would even say things like, he's doing this for attention. He's just doing this for attention. And back then we would say, we would think that was a really bad thing. But now we understand that, yeah, when a child is doing something for attention, you need to tune in and you need to be, you need to be thinking. And I say, Think about the sight, sounds, smells, tastes, and touches of the child's life, because if you're wondering why that behavior is happening, those are the things that usually can tell you about it. And this one particular child I was, I'm thinking about, if I were to think about the, the sights that he saw at home, well, the sights that he saw was a, a mother who was continuously beaten by her boyfriend. He would have seen kids kids and, and uh, other adults coming in and out of the house continuously because they're, the boyfriend sold drugs. You know, if you think about the smells that he smelled uh, as he was growing up as a child, he smelled meth being cooked in the back of the house. The house smelled like cat urine. The house smelled like beer. The house smelled like cigarettes. You think about the touches that he had. They were punches to the face. There were burns by adults. And you start to think about those things and it helps you to understand the why behind some of that behavior. You know, some of the behavior of why he kept all of his belongings close to him were easily explained that he had to keep everything close to him at night because people were coming through the windows of his bedroom to get in to try to get to some of the drugs in the house. And if they couldn't find drugs, they took valuable things. So he kept things that were close to him, really close to him physically. I was thinking about your comment about Bronfenbrenner and this morning, actually, I'm working on an article and I'm writing about a similar experience with a student like that. And, you know, I have the Nick Hobbs, the troubled and troubling child out because I'd cited that, you know, about needing to find joy every day and building trust. Mm. You know, in my case, the particular student, the other adult in the school that he trusted was actually the school resource officer. The resource officer was the only person in the school who ever had anything good to say about this kid. Always, he had something good to say about this kid. And every other teacher was like, why can't we get rid of him? And they wanted to send him to a GNETS program to get him out of my class, as it turned out. Nothing should ever surprise us when we're dealing with kids who have had a difficult time. They're telling us what, what their life is. Oftentimes. Yeah. And I think the, that, you know, the point that you, you made too is, is, is important that when people don't know what to do, they always think that it can be done in a better place. And, and thank goodness for places like GNETs that do exist that have been able to become a safe haven mm -hmm. for many of these kids where they can come and be understood differently. And right. I think that that's the important thing where the, the history of their experiences can come back and be included in the understanding of their behavior today. Yeah. And I think that that becomes so important to yes. what we're able to do. We will continue our discussion with Paul Baker 
in the next episode where we will discuss strengths-based interventions and developing relationships with students who have experienced trauma. The Thoughtful Teacher Podcast is brought to you by our partner, OnCourse Education Solutions. If you would like to learn more about how we help schools and youth organizations implement high-quality, equitable interventions, please visit our website, OnCourseSolutions.net. This has been episode number 28. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and colleagues about it, either in person or using social media. We also greatly appreciate positive reviews on the podcast app you use. The Thoughtful Teacher Podcast is hosted and produced by R. Scott Lee, who retains copyright. We encourage diverse opinions. However, opinions expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of producer, partners, or underwriters. Guest was not compensated for appearance, nor did guest pay to appear. Transcripts are available following podcast publication on our website, thoughtfulteacherpodcast.com. Sponsorship opportunities or other inquiries may be made on the Contact Us page at our website, thoughtfulteacherpodcast.com. Please follow the Thoughtful Teacher Podcast on Twitter at Dr. R. Scott Lee and on Facebook at facebook.com Thoughtful Teacher Podcast. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.